The following sermon podcast is a glimpse into the community of Central Bible Church, where we strive to welcome everyone into Jesus' life. We hope that you can join us for this Sunday service as we gather together seeking to live in and for Christ. for your goodness towards us, sensitive to the leading of your spirit, that we may serve as your vessels in this world. We love you. Pray these things in your name. Amen. You can be seated. Before we worship through giving, we have a a privilege. Um, Stefan and Satomi Sakimoto are here, have been with us for the last several months uh, in and out as they've been on home assignment. Uh, they serve uh, the Lord as missionaries in Japan. And um, over the last year, we've been taking about once a month either watching a video or hearing personally from one of the missionaries or, or families that we support who have uh, gone out from us. And so we've asked them to come and just take a few minutes to share, uh, and then we'll have the opportunity to pray for them. So come on up. Aki is a five-year-old Japanese boy. He's sitting in a small little wooden um, chair in his tiny kindergarten in Oharua, Kitaku, Japan. There are colorful pictures of flowers and plants along the wall. It was a Wednesday morning and the sun was shining through the windows. Aki was sitting there um, during the Bible time I was teaching, eager to hear the Bible stories. If one of the other kids was fidgety or talking, Aki would just glare at them. Aki would um, just listen so closely every time I taught once a week at the kindergarten. After several months, when I came to the week to teach about Jesus being killed on the cross, Aki would uncontrollably wipe his eyes again and again. I really thought he would hurt his eyes that morning. Then I gave an invitation for each child to confess their sins, to ask Jesus to forgive their sins, and then ask Jesus to come into their heart. Aki's hand shot up, and he uh, repeated after me, saying the sinner's prayer right there in that small wooden chair. That day, Aki made a public profession for Jesus Christ. But you know, God had been working in Aki's family before that day. I had also taught Aki's older sister a few years earlier in that same tiny kindergarten. Then Satomi started teaching Aki's mother biblical parenting lessons for a number of years, and I had Aki's father in my husband's marriage small group. Aki's mother accepted Christ after 10 years of Bible study, biblical parenting classes, and women's uh, wives' marriage small group. Sometimes, actually many times, it takes years for persons 
to come to Jesus in Japan. And usually there are the fingerprints of God before and all around that person's life. We are Stefan and Satomi Sakamoto, church planting, disciple-making missionaries in Japan, where the tradition of Buddhism and Shintoism and spiritual superstitions of the Japanese people are strong barriers to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Less than one out of 1,000 persons are followers of Jesus Christ in Japan. We have been careers missionaries in Japan since 1999 and raised our two daughters there, Jessie and Jenny. We are planning to return to Japan next month to start another four-year assignment. We are with TEAM, the Evangelical Alliance Mission. TEAM was founded more than 125 years ago and works on almost every continent in the world. Africa, Asia, Australia, Europe, North America, and South America. Stefan is a third-generation Japanese-American, born in Massachusetts and raised in Kaneohe, Hawaii. While in college at Oregon State University, a close friend told him, uh, told Stefan that God sent Jesus Christ to die for his sins and could change his life. Stefan soon repented of his old life and accepted Christ. As he grew in his faith, the call to be a missionary came almost immediately. Satomi was born and raised in Takamatsu, Kagawa, Japan. Her home was a typical Japanese home, except for the absence of traditional Buddhist ancestor worship. Instead, Satomi's mother told her children, told Satomi and her brothers Bible stories and sent them to Sunday school once in a while. When Satomi was in high school, a short-term missionary family uh, shared the love of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ with Satomi. She immediately accepted Christ. After college, starting a career in the Japanese public school system, Satomi was not satisfied as God had been increasing her desire to serve him full time. We have been married for 27 years and have two daughters, Jessie and Jenny, who are now both married and living in the States. Jessie lives in Richmond, Virginia, and Jenny lives in Tigard, Oregon. Central Bible Church has been supporting us since 1998. And we are so thankful for all the prayers and support of Central Bible Church. We also treasure our new and growing relationships with many of you who we are getting to know and love. Wasn't last week's VBS Children's Outreach really good? Great job, Danny, Chris, Kendra, uh, Marissa, uh, Tony, Andrew, and all the rest that helped. It was so fun. Stefan and I have been invited by Ibaraki Bible Church to join their church planting core team. 
Ibaraki Bible Church is starting their fourth church plant and has asked us to partner with them in starting and developing their number four church plant. Our projected roles will be to make disciple makers, to equip the believers to win other Japanese to Christ so they can develop future soul winners for Jesus. Our activities will be all about making personal relationships in the neighborhood of the church plant. We plan to return to Kobe, Japan next month, then immediately start looking for a place to live in Ibaraki City, the location of the new church plant. We send out a monthly email prayer letter uh, with daily prayer requests and current topics about our family and ministry. We need more prayer warriors to join us in praying for and reaching the Japanese for Jesus Christ. Will you join our prayer team? We'll have a sign-up sheet on one of the back small round tables there with a picture prayer card of our family and also really good Japanese tea packets. Please um, sign us and help us through your prayers. And in closing, um, you guys can see us and hear us from up here on the platform, but we would love to get to know you and talk to you more up close to hear your story and your walk with Jesus and perhaps your interest in Japan. We'll be in the back after the service. Thank you. Let's pray for uh, the Sakimoto's. Thank you, Lord God, for our friends and how you have uh, worked in their lives since they were uh, young uh, and called them to your work. We pray that you would fill them with your spirit, that you would lead them uh, to a fruitful ministry as they join this new team. Give the team unity uh, of heart and vision and love for one another and for uh, the, the people in their community. And God, we are eager to hear um, in through these prayer updates as well as when they re return to Portland, how you moved mightily and how you, you birthed this new church through their, their lives and in, in the lives of the Japanese people who have been transformed by you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, guys. Ashwood, I'm so happy to be able to share with you guys this morning. Um, so we're going to continue in the book of Acts. We're going to be in Acts uh, chapter 11. Uh, just starting at the beginning of that chapter. And we're going to continue some of the same conversation we started last week about, about dinner and about uh, what Pastor Ben shared of how that experience of disgust, right, can be a natural reaction, even a kind of um, defense mechanism to food and things that are gross to us, but that that same disgust can transfer to other things in life and even can apply to people. And we're going to look at this passage and see how Peter and the early church struggled with that and how God shows up and challenges them. And it's this tension that we all experience. It's this tension between being pure and purity and letting what is foreign come into us. 
It's a tension between the sameness, sameness and difference, between unity and diversity, between excluding the things that we think we need to be safe from and including and embracing the other, and that's which is outside of us. So here's a couple ways that we see this in life and culture. Um, this, this guy, Alan Gainett, uh, he wrote a, a book recently called The Creative Curb, and he takes this, uh, uh, this insight from psychology and applies it to creativity, and he talks about, uh, in this creative curve, the relationship between familiarity and preference, and how one hand, we have an urge as humans to crave things that are novel and new and different. But then we also seemingly have this contradictory desire and need to pursue things that are familiar, right, and the same. So, right, it, it, it's this blend of how we, how we mix risk and reward. It's how we want something familiar, right, because it's, it's familiar. We, we know it. We understand it. It's safe. But we also want something new and novel because it's new and exciting. How do we balance these tensions? It's like, think of your, uh, your favorite artist or band and the new album that gets released, right? In the, and you listen to it for the first couple times, and you're like, oh, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I like these guys, but it's a little, it's different. It's new. I'm not sure if I like it yet, right? And then you listen to it a dozen times, you're like, this is awesome. It's the greatest album ever. And then after it's been on repeat for 500 times, you're just like, not again. I don't want to hear this anymore, right? That, that's, that's the movie Frozen at my house, okay? I have little girls, and when that movie came out, we watched it again and again and again. And those songs, let it go, just let it go, right? We heard it again and again, and, and we're kind of over it now. Um, that, that's that, that tension between what is familiar and the same and what is different. We also see it in culture uh, through the 1967 movie, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Maybe you guys have seen it. My younger generation, maybe not. But it's an Academy Award-nominated film starring Sidney Poitier, Andy, or Audrey Hepburn, and Spencer Tracy. And in it, the daughter of a white, upper-class, but very liberal and progressive-minded white family, this daughter, she falls in love with an African-American man and brings him home for dinner. Now, this progressive and liberal family and these white parents, they were quickly confronted and shown how a lot of their liberal progressive ideas were merely theoretical. And they could live under the impression that they didn't harbor maybe subtle forms of racism in their hearts, they could live under the impression until the prospect of having their daughter marry a black man entered their lives and confronted them, right? They liked the idea of embracing the people who are different. They weren't sure they were ready to live with the reality of what it would cost them if that difference came in and actually changed them. We like the idea of unity and diversity, but we don't always know how to actually live it out. So, the, Peter, the story of Peter and Cornelius that we'll look at today is, is kind of like guess who's coming to dinner, right? It's, it's, guess what? The Gentiles are coming to dinner. 
And, and we see that the Christians in Jerusalem, along with the, the Jews of their day, were just utterly offended and scandalized by this. Not just that they would come to dinner, but that they would join the family. And I want us to feel the weight of how hard that was for them and even continues to be for us today. So turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 11, and we'll get going with that. Acts chapter 11, verse 1. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Ooh. So the nations were not invited over for dinner. Right? But why was that such an issue? I don't think we, I want to try to bring us back to that day to feel the weight of it. You see, these Jerusalem Christians, they were trying to follow their Bible. There was, along with the Pharisees of the day, there was this purity tradition within the scriptures, right? That called Israel to separate themselves from the nations around them, to be holy as God is holy. Sin and sinful people could pollute you and make you ceremonially unclean. In the same way, eating forbidden food or eating with people who ate forbidden food would make you unclean. I don't want you to just take my word for it. So look at this connection. I think I got a, um, the scripture up on the slide so you don't have to jump around. This is Leviticus chapter 20, starting in verse 24. It just says, I am the Lord your God who has separated you from the peoples. You shall therefore separate the clean beast from the unclean and the unclean bird from the clean. Listen to the connection between food and people. You shall not make for yourselves De, de, uh, make yourself detestable by beast or by bird or by anything with which the ground crawls, which I've set apart for you to hold unclean. You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. The connection between the avoidance of Gentile food and the avoidance of Gentile people was not just contrived by prejudice in their hearts but it was necessitated by just the reality of hospitality and the role that the dinner table has in people's lives, especially in that culture, right? For family, for Jewish family life and worship. If I cannot eat with you, I cannot be your companion. If you want to be in a relationship with me, then you invite me to your table and I will come and you will spread extravagant hospitality for me. And if I, if I receive that, then I have this obligation, and I want to share it back with you. And so I'll say, thanks for having me over. Come on over for dinner. And I will try to outdo you in showing honor. That was this sharing, this give and take of love and hospitality in that culture and in that world. And if I refuse to, to share table fellowship with you, I have just refused your friendship in my life. Or if I refuse to return the offer of hospitality, I have refused your friendship in my life and deeply offended you. So that was that connection between food and relationship. We won't eat with people. We can't be their friends. And that's the background, okay? That's the debate. They're not just these horrible, prejudiced people. This is a part of who they were and even a part of God's law that he set before them. Now, we've got to get ready for this because there's this curveball that shows up in this story. 
right? God shows up and he blows the doors off of this little private church potluck in Jerusalem, right? Where the Christians felt so comfortable and safe because everyone, right, talked the same, looked the same, believed the same, ate the same. We could all just have our happy, go lucky, private little church potluck. And God breaks open the doors and he invites in the Gentiles and he challenges the prejudices of Peter and these early believers, opening up their hearts. So let, let's see that now. We'll keep reading in verse 4. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. So he's defending what already happened that we heard about last week. He says, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing unclean, common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. So first we see here that God sets the table, and we, like Peter and the disciples of the early church, are scandalized by his menu and by the guests he chooses to invite. Right? So what's happening here? Is God changing his mind? Right? We read Leviticus. Now he's saying, hey, I'm calling this this clean, these people, this food, it's clean, right? <laughs> I can't imagine. Was God like just up in heaven and he, and he listened to a Jim Gaffigan uh, stand-up sketch about bacon, right? And he's like, hmm, bacon. Yeah, I kind of like it. Okay, go for it. Enjoy the bacon, right? I don't think so. I don't think there's just some change that happened, some switch that got flipped in heaven. I think there's something deeper going on. And it goes all the way back to the law and the prophets, right? We, we saw this purity principle, this purity tradition running through Leviticus and the, and the law. But there's something else. There's something else, another central theme that we read through the Scriptures. And that's actually in tension with this purity tradition. And that's the theme of mercy and embrace. These two themes of purity and mercy pull in opposite directions and actually lead to different ways of living. And they're not that easy to reconcile with one another. And they could correspond to that same tension that we talked about of sameness and difference. And it's what we, we see in the text today. So I want you to look real quick with me. In Leviticus, so I read in Leviticus 20, but right before that command about separating from the people and the food, there's this amazing word in Leviticus 19, verse 33. It says this, it says, When the stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord you God. He says, you remember what it was like being a minority. You remember what it was like being the sojourner, the outsider, the refugee. And so love them. Love the, the pagan. Love the Gentile who's traveling through your land and love them as yourself in the same way you'd love your Jewish neighbor. 
right? There's, that's incredible. How do you live, a, live these two tensions out? And then we, we, as we read through the prophets, you see again and again the prophets confronting the corruption within the priestly system and the misapplication of the purity laws. Look at Zechariah chapter 7. When you pull that up, I'll, I'll read this in verse 4 because I, I want us to see it um, and see this tension. Look at, the, again, the, the connection between food and how we eat and this call to mercy and justice. Zechariah 7.4. Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me. Say to all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and the seventh for these 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Were not these the words that the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous? with her cities around her, and the south and the lowland were inhabited. So you're having these, these little private festivals and parties, and it's all for you. It's all for yourself. And listen to what he says. Look at, look at how this justice and mercy theme pours in. He says, And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments. Show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor. And let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. That's amazing. These, these traditions, these Levitical purity rituals, it says, are you do, God says, are you doing it for me or is it for you? And they had turned inward and they had turned these, their, uh, their dietary traditions into a selfish practice. And God says, no, this is what I care about, is justice, is mercy to the widow, to the sojourner. That was scandalizing. And probably the, the most scandalizing words that confront this, this purity tradition actually comes from Jesus quoting Hosea. So look at this. I, I think we should have it uh, in Matthew chapter 9. This is amazing. I think so too easily we read over these quickly and not realize the weight of these. Matthew chapter 9, verses 10 through 13. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house... Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Look who came to dinner, who Jesus invited. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Do you hear that invitation this morning? Isn't that amazing? Go and learn what this means. I think that implies this isn't, this isn't easy to understand. This is actually kind of hard. It's hard to understand and hard to do. And then look what he says. How can this be? How, how do we make sense of it? Right? We like balance. 
I would love if Jesus was just balanced, okay? Because I think I can harmonize tensions in my life. I do it all the time. It would be much easier if Jesus just said, I desire mercy and sacrifice, right? Stay pure in your life. Avoid sin and all those bad things. And then, oh yeah, show mercy on the side. And you could find, probably find a good way to do this. You could, you could kind of keep all your religious traditions really, really well. And then you tithe your money to the priest. And then he would take care of the dirty stuff, right? Like loving the, 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 the hard-to-love people and the dirty people. And, and then look, look, I'm keeping my traditions and I'm showing mercy because I'm, I'm outsourcing <laughs> the work to the professionals. See, that would be much easier. That would make sense. But he says something far more radical, doesn't he? And something entirely different. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And we see it in his life, don't we? The way that that the leper came to him and he touches the leper first, thus taking uncleanness on himself before he says, be cleaned and healed. Or the way as he's sitting with the Pharisee in his home and the, the sinful woman, the dirty woman, comes and, and confesses and weeps for her sin and washes his feet with her tears. And the, and the religious pure men scoff and say, if he was a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this was. And thus he wouldn't let her touch him. And, and he embraced and he loved those people. Right? Or the way that he always, on purpose, healed on the Sabbath. Thus, in the eyes of the religious people, breaking God's law and being a sinner himself. He's, just, he's pushing against this, this purity system. And it's driving us to see something that's deeper. That is not just a simple contrast. It's not this, well, mercy and sacrifice. We need, or, uh, we need both. You see, God demands mercy, not sacrifice. Because the true sacrifice of God is mercy. God demands mercy as sacrifice. Because all true mercy is costly. And because all religious ritual that does not reflect the mercy and love of God is spiritually and morally bankrupt. I'll say it again. God demands mercy, not sacrifice, because the true sacrifice of God is mercy. In fact, God demands mercy as sacrifice, and all mercy is costly. Okay, I'm going to I'm going to share a quote. It's kind of long. It's kind of deep. But it digs at this. And it scandalizes us. And I think it's helpful and good. It comes from a man named Miroslav Volf, who wrote a book, uh, award-winning book called Exclusion and Embrace. And he talks about this, um, what Jesus does and how he, how he deals with impure people. It says, An advantage of conceiving sin as the practice of exclusion is that it names as sin what often passes as virtue aseptically in religious circles. 
I'm not that smart. I had to look that up. And my, my like, dictionary and my Mac didn't know what it meant. So I had to Google it. So that's, when you make something aseptic, you're, you're covering it in plastic, right? You're, you're wrapping it so that no germs can get in. It's perfectly sealed and protected from the outside world. And this thing that passes as, as virtue within religious circles. In the Palestine of Jesus' day, sinners were not simply the wicked, who were therefore religiously bankrupt, but also social outcasts, people who practiced despised trades, Gentiles and Samaritans, those who failed to keep the law as interpreted by a particular sect. A righteous person had to separate him, herself from the latter, their presence defiled because they were defiled. Jesus' table fellowship with tax collectors and sinners, a fellowship that indisputably belonged to the central features of his ministry, offset this conception of sin. Since he who was innocent, sinless, and fully within God's camp transgressed social boundaries and excluded outcasts, these boundaries themselves were evil, sinful, and outside God's will. By embracing the outcast, Jesus understood the sinfulness of the persons and the systems that cast them out. There's a lot to think about there. But we see it in this passage, don't we? We see how Jesus confronts the system that justified keeping people out. And Jesus invites the Gentiles to dinner, and it's scandalizing. Let's keep reading in Acts uh, 11. We'll go on from verse, yeah, verse 11. And behold, that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. So we see here that, that it's God's table, that he has invited the nations, and we must be ready to open the door for them when they knock. Okay? Now, I love here God's hand. It's so obvious, right? So just as God is speaking to Peter, right? he's right, he's praying, God reveals his vision to him. As that's happening, at the same time, God is revealing himself to Cornelius, right? And just as Peter comes downstairs, oh, ready for lunch, right? Remember, they were cooking for him while he was praying. Just as he comes down ready to eat his wonderful kosher lunch, Cornelius' men show up, right? God loves to do things like that, right? That, that, the, the timing. And then immediately he's faced with, how do I apply that vision that I just had? How do I, right, welcome in these people that, and this food that formerly I found disgusting and revolting? It's not an accident. The Holy Spirit does this. And here's what's amazing as I, that just struck me in such a powerful way is that as he is preparing you and me to share his love and show his mercy to those who are far from God, he is at the same time preparing someone to receive that love from us. That's, so in this moment, 
If you're being convicted of sin, if there's courage and love rising up in your heart, if there's fear or prejudice being uprooted and pushed out by God's Spirit, at the same moment, God is speaking and revealing himself to someone who needs to hear the good news of Jesus from you. You see that happening? It happened. There's Peter wrestling and praying. No, God, it can't be. No, God, it can't be. No. Can it be, God, that you love these people? As he's wrestling with it, as God's wrestling with his heart, pounding on the hardness of his heart, God's working on Cornelius, a 30-hour journey away. And then the perfect timing, they begin this, this, uh, this journey, and then they show up just as he's coming down to eat his kosher meal. I believe the same thing can be true for us. That as God is working in our hearts this morning, preparing us to share his love, there's someone being prepared to receive that love from us this week. So let's do this. Let, let's stop. Let's pray right now for the, for the Cornelius that God is preparing for you to meet. Let's do that. Lord Jesus, it can be weird to stop in the middle of a sermon to pray. But it reminds us that you are present with us now. And we, we, we pray for those people, for those Corneliuses, that right now you are